these comments deal with the topic of comparative psychology, and those uh, that topic's dealt with by Benson, pages 155 to 158. The term comparative psychology suggests a comparison uh, between the behavior and experiences of animals with the with each other, but particularly in comparison to humans. There are psychologists who study animal behavior in its own right without any reference to its relationship to human behavior. And there are courses that you can take uh, at York, for example, in animal behavior. Uh, but those courses in animal behavior will deal with a good deal of uh, the comparative aspect. And in general, what I want to talk about uh, in these comments are some basic categories of animal research and give you some examples uh, of each. Um, my organization for this comes primarily from um, a chapter in a textbook by Graham Richards, and I give you the reference for that at the end of the outline. One of the primary ideas that we've talked about is how the theory of evolution gave rise to the idea of the continuum uh, among the hierarchy of animals with uh, humans at the top of this uh, evolved or evolutionary hierarchy. And that with, once that idea became uh, well known, then people began to look uh, to animals as a means of understanding humans, because they thought, well, if there is this continuity uh, through evolution, then we can learn a great deal from uh, the study of, of the animals. But the nature of that study has taken uh, many different forms. Uh, one aspect of this is the ethology studies. Ethology refers to the study of animals in their natural environment. Uh, Remember that we talked about the study that uh, the behaviorists did of animals, particularly rats and pigeons, and this is not uh, ethology, and I'll talk about that uh, in a moment. The study of uh, animals in their natural environment, the example that we worked with uh, the most was Conrad Lorenz and his study of uh, imprinting uh, in geese. In general, uh, these ethological studies put a lot of emphasis on the concept of instinct. Instinct had been, was a term that was used uh, prior to uh, the development of psychology. It uh, went through a bit of a decline during the behaviorist uh, years, but the ethology uh, brought it back to a considerable extent. Uh, but people talked about instinct in a more specific fashion. So, for instance, uh, rather than talking about an instinct, uh, an instinctual behavior, people are more likely to talk about uh, fixed action patterns, and that these fixed action patterns were the result of um, innate releasing mechanisms. Uh, imprinting was an example of this. Uh, the gosling that uh, detects movement uh, follows so the following is the fixed action pattern. The uh, movement is the innate releasing mechanism. So the idea was that something in the environment stimulated uh, biologically an innate releasing mechanism, which activated the fixed action pattern. So imprinting is one example of this, uh, this process. 
but studies were conducted on lots of different kinds of behavior. And one of the things that was done in this comparative way was to speculate about the connection between certain kinds of uh, patterns in uh, lower animals and similar patterns in uh, humans. So for example, um, in birds, uh, there are some birds where it's common as a part of the mating ritual uh, for the male bird to uh, find a worm and bring it and present it uh, to the female. Well, when uh, a guy asks uh, a girl out and arrives with a box of chocolate or a set of flowers, is that the same kind of thing as the bird bringing worms? Well, try bringing worms the next time uh, one of you guys ask somebody out and see uh, see what kind of response you get, uh, but at least you'll be able to explain that it's got something to do with your psychology class. Um, fixed action patterns, instincts uh, around uh, social hierarchy would be another example of this. Um, fixed action patterns having to do with the defense of territory. Well, when a person rises, moves up in an organization and gets a bigger desk, is this just a way of staking out uh, the territory? Is there, a, is there an innate aspect to some of these human behaviors, like the giving of gifts to uh, someone that you're going out with, uh, the claim on larger uh, space and uh, better uh, tools uh, within that space, uh, are these examples of the built-in uh, instinctual mechanisms that we find in uh, lower animals. These kinds of interests led to a development of a general category of animal research and speculation called uh, sociobiology. And under this uh, heading, people studied things like uh, conflict and aggression. And so territoriality could be one source of uh, conflict, uh, defense of uh, the territory of a nest, of a den, and so forth. One of the ideas that uh, came along with sociobiology was that when we study these and we see these fixed action patterns uh, in animals, it suggests a certain inevitability about it. That there's a built-in innate uh, quality uh, to these. In general, the sociobiological approaches uh, are nativist in uh, conception rather than uh, favoring environmental explanations for behavior. They look at biological explanations, particularly biology that has developed through uh, uh, evolution. There's a political dimension to this uh, kind of work as well, because the implication is that because certain kinds of conflict and aggression, certain kinds of sex differences with respect to conflict and aggression, and with respect to other kinds of behavior, uh, because they're built in, uh, innate, then within humans, uh, these things are, are inevitable and attempts to legislate against them or change them uh, may may not be uh, effective. Now, other people with other views may say, no, it's learning is perfectly possible with respect to these, they can be changed. But this is the kind of political discussion that can fall out of the uh, psychological research. Uh, with respect to conflict and aggression specifically, uh, Benson mentions uh, concepts of social facilitation, ritualized aggression, 
And I've given some links further down in the outline about these. I'll say a bit more about that in a moment. Um, another topic that Haidt uh, discusses that's relevant uh, to this kind of uh, animal research is the concept of reciprocal altruism. This is a sociobiological uh, phenomenon. Sociobiology in general uh, refers to looking at the biological basis of social uh, interaction. Uh, the altruism height is discussed uh, at great length, but the, those discussions are tied up with the sociobiologist, and we'll come to them again uh, in the uh, final week of the course uh, when we do Moganum's uh, chapter on evolutionary psychology. A very different kind of uh, use of animals in research is the behaviorist uh, orientation. I've labeled these in the outline atomistic understandings of human behavior. Uh, you recall the atomistic nature of uh, behaviorist work in general, uh, the idea of building uh, human behavior out of elementary units like stimulus-response connections through classical conditioning or through uh, operant conditioning. Behaviorist research conceptualized all human behavior as being built up from uh, these basic atoms. And because those atoms would be the same, stimulus-response connections would be the same in any animal as they would in humans, it made perfect sense to study the, the animals. Uh, conditions were simpler, it was easier to control, and so forth. And so behaviorist research with animals was very much from this atomistic uh, point of view and not uh, particularly interested in the evolutionary origins of the behavior that was being studied. You'll remember, too, that uh, the behaviorist orientation is very much an environmentalist orientation. It's not nativist in conception. It doesn't offer uh, built-in uh, biological explanations. It doesn't offer reductionist explanations, biologically reductionist explanations for behavior, but rather sees the origins of behavior in schedules of reinforcement uh, in the environment. There are many other uh, examples of studies of uh, animal, uh, using animals in research that have this idea of let's look at animals because we can see human behavior in a simpler form. Uh, but the research is not necessarily behaviorist uh, in orientation. There are studies, for instance, where we try to understand something about uh, how uh, organisms adapt uh, to environmental conditions. Uh, a classic example of this is studies of overcrowding in mice. If you uh, create a colony of mice and allow them to continue breeding, you provide sufficient food, uh, they eventually become too cramped uh, in the quarters. Uh, what happens? Uh, how do they react specifically? Well, I've given you a link where you can read a bit more uh, about some classic work of uh, this sort, uh, the basic answer is that the colony dies out uh, because the overcrowding interferes in a number of ways uh, with the standard behavior, but particularly the reproductive behavior uh, of the mice. So this is an example of a kind of research done with animals where it's a simpler situation, a human uh, situation, but also it's got uh, ethical connotations. The, we can't do this in a, a laboratory setting uh, with humans. There are lots of other phenomena that have been studied in um, 
animals uh, in order to uh, take advantage of the simpler uh, condition situation organisms. Uh, we've talked, for instance, about attachment uh, at great length, the studies that uh, Harlow did uh, with monkeys. Uh, like the mice, uh, Harlow's interest in the uh, monkeys was not really in the animals per se. The interest was within humans, and it was studying it in animals in order to get an idea under these simpler conditions of uh, the nature of human uh, behavior and emotion in the case of uh, attachment. I've given you a link uh, to another example, studies of stress. And uh, these involve, uh, this research involves monkeys as well. Uh, the study is about, uh, it's a classic study called the executive monkeys uh, study. Uh, what they were looking at was whether uh, under stressful conditions, it's better, if it's, is it more stressful or less stressful to have control over the situation? So for instance, if, uh, you're receiving shocks. Is it more stressful to have control over when uh, those shocks will, how they'll be spaced out or um, their level and, and so forth? Uh, in these uh, studies, uh, the executive monkey studies, they put uh, monkeys in pairs and administered shocks uh, to both of the monkeys, but only one of the monkeys had any control over uh, whether they would come, how they would come, how frequently they would come, and so forth. And the issue was whether uh, the one monkey would uh, suffer, suffer more stress uh, than the other. And it does turn out that uh, having some control uh, does considerably uh, reduce the, the physiological uh, impact of the stress uh, of this kind of situation. Another category of research uh, with animals, or another way to conceptualize some of the animal research, to say that uh, what's involved is trying to study the boundary, uh, the borderline between humans and animals. How are, what are the distinctions? What are the differences? Uh, how closely uh, aligned are uh, humans uh, with animals? Particularly, in this case, the studies are with apes. In a general way, though, uh, the idea that we talked about earlier in the course when we were talking about Freud, who was very influenced by this uh, evolutionary concept, uh, when he talked about the beast within, the notion of the id, uh, or conceptualizing humans as maintaining a certain uh, biological basis uh, in the prior, uh, prior in terms of evolution, uh, animals uh, that preceded us. So we still have this bestial nature to a certain uh, extent. Now it's been overridden. As Haidt has explained to us, uh, we have, for instance, he talked in the one uh, section about the short path and the long path with respect to emotion. The one is sort of the more primitive uh, form. So one aspect of this borderline issue is to what extent do humans maintain animal-like characteristics. But research can go the other way too, and we can ask, uh, to what extent do animals have characteristics that we've traditionally associated uh, solely with humans? I would say that the Gestalt uh, problem-solving problem research uh, fits uh, in this category. On page 155 in Benson, uh, he puts the Gestalt uh, 
cognitive learning, Curler's uh, apes, he puts this work in together with other learning theories that have a laboratory base. I would say that Curler's work was, it was not ethology because he didn't study the apes in their natural environment, but it's not really laboratory work either in the controlled setting. In fact, you may recall that one of the criticisms of uh, the studies that Kohler did was the uncontrolled uh, nature of his observations. But what Kohler was really interested in was insight uh, with, with uh, the apes, that uh, they would look at a problem, uh, and they would sort of study it, and when they, and then in a particular moment, they would seem to grasp or have insight to the nature of the problem and solve it, uh, reaching the bananas that were there outside the cage or up above the cage by putting together objects from within the uh, uh, within their environment. Uh, this kind of problem solving uh, studied in apes, but it's uh, part of a, an attempt to understand to what extent this thinking, a process that we normally associate with humans, also take place uh, in animals and in a in a similar uh, fashion or not to the way it takes place uh, in humans. I think one of the most interesting kinds of research that's done in this animal-human borderline category are studies of communication uh, in animals. Now, clearly, some kinds of communication, communication in bees, for example, is not uh, anything at all like human uh, communication. But uh, what about uh, in apes, for instance? And in particular, could apes learn, if instructed, uh, to communicate in ways that uh, were more similar uh, to humans? I've given you several links here that I think uh, you'll find interesting. The first under the heading communication. It's a very general description about the nature of uh, communication that you see in apes in their natural uh, environment. And just a little bit of discussion about attempts to train uh, apes to speak. Uh, the second under the category of language in apes goes into much more detail about these attempts to teach uh, apes language. Now, fairly early on, uh, people realized that they weren't going to be able to teach apes to actually speak. They don't have the uh, physical apparatus um, that would allow it. It's, it's just not physically possible for them to make the kinds of sounds that humans uh, can make. Uh, and the idea that uh, they came up with was, well, how about sign language? Uh, could could the apes learn to speak uh, to humans and to one another uh, through the use of sign language? Well, you can follow the links to get more detail about this, but uh, initially there was a great deal of excitement about uh, this. It appeared that uh, some uh, of the chimpanzees that were featured in these studies uh, could, in fact, uh, communicate quite well, and perhaps even were teaching their offspring uh, naturally to use the sign language in much the same way as humans. Uh, subsequently, uh, people who looked more closely uh, argued that in fact the chimps were not uh, using uh, the signs in a, in, in a true language function. They were able to associate certain 
signs with certain objects. But they couldn't put the signs together in a meaningful fashion to construct uh, sentences that they weren't able to manage what uh, linguists call syntax of uh, sentences. And so they were simply copying this. Well, that's an interesting thing in its own right, but there's actually quite a continued heated debate about the abilities that have been uh, formed and what they mean. Uh, well, we're not talking about uh, uh, language, although in other courses uh, uh, you might come across this topic again. Here I'm just trying to illustrate that there is a great deal of research uh, on this uh, topic, and it fits into this notion of trying to explore the boundary between uh, human and, and other animals. Researchers doing laboratory studies uh, with apes have studied other things besides uh, language, um, memory, for instance, uh, the ability to, to use numbers. And I've given you a link to a, a newspaper, Guardian, uh, it's from The Guardian, uh, an article about a particular research project in Japan where some chimpanzees are working uh, on experiments where they have to... Uh, learn the numbers and remember where they appeared on a screen and they they receive rewards for uh, reproducing after the numbers uh, disappear for being able to point to reproduce where the different numbers were uh, in sequence well it turns out the apes are quite good at this in fact much better than either you or i would be able to do it, uh, any of the graduate students that uh, are in the laboratory and there's a short video that's uh, with the uh, Guardian article that I think you'll find interesting uh, to look at. It's pretty amazing what these uh, chimps are doing. In his discussion of uh, communication, Benson includes uh, a page where he talks about social facilitation and ritualized aggression. Now, I've included them here at this point, uh, although these particular characteristics are not really being explored in a laboratory setting, and this particular uh, research probably fits better back under the topic of uh, sociobiology uh, evolution that I spoke about uh, before. Social facilitation is uh, an effect that has a long history of study in psychology. It uh, has to do with um, a behavior improving or being more rapid when conducted in the presence of uh, other people. In fact, the very first experiment in psychology, some people say social psychology in any event, was a study of social facilitation. A man named Trippett uh, asked people to do a number of different tasks, both alone and with others, and found that uh, their performance was generally better in the presence of others. Uh, the link I've uh, given you uh, here is to a description of several different uh, pieces of research that students in a particular animal behavior course are asked to do as a practicum. Part of their work in the first one involves social facilitation in chickens, whether certain behaviors of chickens uh, change when uh, there are other chickens uh, around as opposed to when they're in isolation. The uh, main point, though, that uh, Benson makes is about uh, ritualized uh, aggression. The second uh, experiment in the uh, 
practicum list that I give you mentions ritualized aggression, and then there are several other experiments listed that uh, don't involve either social facilitation or ritualized aggression. I think you might find interesting as the kinds of things one might do in a practicum for an animal behavior course. But ritualized aggression is an important topic uh, in its own right. Uh, the point that Benson's making is that uh, aggression in many animals, uh, especially those that live in communities, seems to have a ritualized form. That means it's not it's not uh, serious aggression in the sense that it's going to go to the point of seriously injuring or killing uh, the other animal. There's a ritual that people go through, and one of the animals uh, becomes uh, submissive uh, in the process, and that ends the, the ritual. I've given you a video link depicting uh, two wolves in one of these kinds of interactions. One of them is clearly the dominant, uh, the other is the, uh, the submissive. And this is part of what uh, Benson's getting at, is that um, these animals in these colonies form a dominance a hierarchy. You've probably heard the term the, the alpha. It's often a male, but in some, particularly in monkey colonies, it's often a female that is in the alpha position, the top of the hierarchy. And uh, every other animal below him or her in the hierarchy will take the submissive uh, position in these ritualized uh, aggressions. Though sometimes there may be challenges uh, within the hierarchy and uh, there may be switches uh, around. But that uh, the research that's been done on this suggests that actually these uh, rigid hierarchies maintain uh, peace to a considerable extent within the communities. One caution that uh, Benson uh, makes about uh, this kind of work where we're looking at the animal-human uh, borderline is that we need to guard against uh, being anthropomorphic. Uh, to be anthropomorphic means to assign human characteristics uh, to non-human uh, animals or uh, plants or inanimate objects. And uh, interestingly, as I was speaking, I noticed that when I was talking about uh, the wolves in the uh, hierarchy or in the ritualized aggression, that uh, at one point I slipped and I talked about, I used the word people rather than uh, animals, uh, revealing that, uh, in fact, I was engaging in a bit of anthropomorphism as I talked about this. But that's, uh, I think, actually in the research itself, there is this idea of how, to what extent are animals like uh, humans. It's very easy for us to read that in. The research designed to study it to see to what extent uh, it's accurate. I finish with a uh, link that I encourage you to, to have a look at. I, it's a short story that I enjoy uh, very much by Franz Kafka. It's called A Report to an Academy. And the pretense of the article is that an ape uh, captured uh, in Africa and imported to Europe has uh, begun to mimic the humans uh, who are transporting him. And in fact, over a period of uh, five years, uh, has learned to speak and to uh, act in human ways and has now been invited to give a report at the Royal Society 
uh, about his experiences of becoming uh, human. Anyway, I think uh, you might enjoy it, uh, so I, I'll leave you with that, uh, with that link.